The following audio is from Delta Church in Springfield, Illinois. Our purpose is to proclaim the gospel through the church to a world that needs Jesus Christ. We pray this sermon will aid and encourage your daily walk with Jesus. For more information about Delta, you can visit us online at deltachurch.net. Today's scripture is John chapter 3, verses 14 through 18. It is on page 835 if you're using the Bible in front of you. And when you are ready, you may stand as I read the word of God. And as Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, so must the Son of Man be lifted up, that whoever believes in him may have eternal life. For God so loved the world that he gave his only Son, that whoever believes in him should not perish but have eternal life. For God did not send his Son into the world to condemn the world, but in order that the world might be saved through him. Whoever believes in him is not condemned, but whoever does not believe is condemned already because he has not believed in the name of the only Son of God. This is the word of God. Go ahead and sit down. Well, good morning, Jesus family. Hope this Easter Sunday has greeted you well and that you've been given ample opportunity to be able to worship the resurrected Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Hey, this morning we're going to do is we're going to celebrate the resurrection of King Jesus by turning our attention to John chapter 3, verse 16, probably one of the most famous verses in all of the Bible. And from John chapter 3, verse 16, this morning, what we're going to learn is this singular truth, that whoever believes in the resurrected Son of God, they have eternal life. Whoever believes in the resurrected Son of God has eternal life. You see, on Friday, the Son of God was dead, but Sunday has come. The grave has been robbed, sin has been defeated, and now whoever believes in the resurrected Son of God has eternal life. So what we're going to do is we're going to hit pause, we're going to pray, we're going to ask for the Holy Spirit to empower the preaching of his word, then we're going to dive into this text and see what Jesus has to say to us from these famous verses. So let's pray. Father, I ask that you would glorify your name now as we seek to magnify your great love. as we seek to magnify the gift of your resurrected son and the reality that sinners apart from Christ whose lot is eternal perishing outside of Christ can know and have and receive eternal life as a result of believing in Jesus Christ as their Lord and Savior. Holy Spirit, would you empower this time right now? Would you make it so that the words coming out of my mouth would land on hearts and minds in such a way to where they would see Jesus Christ, see their need for Jesus Christ, bringing many to worship Jesus as we Um, preach these words and bringing some to repent and believe in King Jesus for the first time. It is in your name I pray these things. 
Amen. Well, we are living in an increasingly post-Christian culture, but it's not as though all signs of Christianity have just completely evaporated out of the culture that we find ourselves in. You see, the ghosts of Christian influence still haunt secular society today, and the evidence can be seen in that when asked, most people are still able to identify a key verse from the Bible, even if they know nothing else about the Bible. And that key verse, I would argue, is John chapter 3, verse 16. If you were just to go into the workplace tomorrow and drop that little phrase on people, that name and those two numbers, if they know nothing about Christianity at all, if they know nothing about the Bible at all, my hunch is that they would still be able to say, ah, yeah, yeah, that's that famous verse from the Bible that you Christians love so much. You see, out of all of the verses in the Bible, John 3.16 being this famous verse, the question begging to be asked is this, why this verse? Like, why is John 3.16 the thing? Why do preacher men like me get up and preach on a single verse like John 3.16? Why do Christians memorize this verse, John 3.16? Why do folks who are familiar or unfamiliar with Christianity know this verse, John chapter 3, verse 16? I would argue the answer is this. The answer is because this verse is the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ in miniature. If you wanted to shrink this entire thing right here down into a sentence, John 3.16 is that sentence. John 3.16 is the good news that Jesus Christ is the Savior who saves sinners miniaturized into a single verse. For this verse magnifies God. It magnifies his extravagant love. This verse exposes man's need to be saved. It supplies Christ as the only answer for salvation. And this verse ultimately invites the hearer to respond and not neglect the great salvation that can be found in Jesus Christ alone. Now, at the heart of this passage, at the heart of this verse, at the heart of the the verses that Michelle read for us this morning, my argument is this. There lies a question at the heart of this passage, and the question is this. How can someone, how can you, how can I lay claim to God's gift of eternal life? You see, this verse is saying that eternal life can be had. This verse is also saying that if you don't have eternal life, you have eternal perishing apart from God in a place called hell. And so if God is drawing you to himself, if God is opening your eyes to begin to see that outside of Christ, and I am outside of Christ, if that is what you can say, eternal perishing is what I will get as my just reward for not believing in Christ, and he's drawing you to himself to see eternal life is a possibility through belief in the Lord Jesus Christ, the question to ask yourself is this, how do I lay claim? How do I lay hold of this promise that whoever believes in the resurrected Son of of God can have eternal life. The answer supplied in our text is to believe. That is how you lay claim. To believe. 
to believe in the resurrected Son of God, for, says verse 16, John chapter 3, whoever believes in Jesus can have eternal life. So how did God act then? What did he do? What drove him to make this eternal life that can be had for whoever believes in Christ? What drove him? What fueled him to make this eternal life a possibility? Like, why did he do this? What was driving him to act in such a way to bring it about that those eternally perishing apart from Christ can be brought to the place where they're no longer eternally perishing but receive the gift of Christ and know eternal life? The Apostle John says you have to look no further than the reality of God's love. It's the reality of God's love. That's what the verses 14, 15, and 16 are talking about in John chapter 3. So if you specifically zoom in on verse 16, the Apostle John says this is what God did in order to make the eternal life that can be yours a possibility. For, he says, God so loved the world that he gave his only son. Notice that this verse begins with a word that is very easy to overlook. And it's that little word, F-O-R, for. But this little word shows us how verse 16 is connected to verses 14 and 15 before it. You see, in verse 14, Jesus has just told a man, Nicodemus, Nicodemus, I am the son of man. So Jesus refers to himself with this term. And he says, Nicodemus, here's what you need to know. Something must happen. It absolutely must. It is a necessity. I, as the son of man, must be lifted up in death on a cross. It has to happen, Nicodemus. There's no, there's no other, other way. I have to go to the cross. I have to die. I must be lifted up. And the question is, well, why? Why must Jesus be lifted up in death? Have you ever thought about that? Why do Christians make a big deal out of Good Friday and celebrate the crucifixion? Why do we then turn around and subsequently celebrate his resurrection on Easter Sunday? Why must Jesus be lifted up in death on a cross? Verse 16 gives us the answer. The death of Jesus was necessary because God so loved the world. The crucifixion is necessary because God loved. The crucifixion of the Son of God is a direct result of the love of God for you and for me. But notice that this isn't love merely measured by intensity, right? God so loved the world, like, right? like a little kid come in and he maybe went fishing and he's showing his dad the fish. He's like, dad, the fish was so big. Not, not so big, but so big, right? He's trying to tell his dad the intensity. He's trying to measure the intensity of that fish, the magnitude of that fish by saying it was so, so, so big. Now, when John says here in this verse that God so loved the world, he is talking about the intensity. He is talking about how big it is. This isn't God so loved the world. I mean, it's like he just barely, it hurt him so much to give so little. That's not what John is saying. John is saying it is big. It is intense. God's love is great. But it is not merely being measured in intensity, 
when God says he so loved the world. Rather, what he is saying is this, is that he is measuring his love by a demonstration of his love. You see, when the apostle John says, God so loved the world, he is saying God loved in a real and tangible way. He so loved the world that he decided to demonstrate that love for the world. He wasn't just going to say, I love you, in word only. He so loved the world that he was going to say, I love you, and then step into a demonstration of that love by giving his only son. Love was demonstrated by God in the way he acted by giving his son for our salvation. You see, have you ever asked yourself the question, how do I know that someone loves me? High school, your sweetheart, I think she loves me. I think he might love me. Well, how do you know? She said those words to me. I love you. Not knowing that maybe a month beforehand, she was saying, I love you to someone else, right? Or that guy who comes along in college is like, baby, you're the one. I love you. But yeah, he was just saying that last night too to someone else, right? Anybody can say, I love you. Talk is cheap, right? Anybody can say, I love you. So how do you know someone loves you? My hunch that if I were to ask you that question, we were to set up a mic and people were to begin to come up here and answer the question, here's how I know someone loves me. My hunch is that we would answer, I know I am loved, not merely because someone has told me the three magic words, I love you. See, that is a way to do it, but my hunch is that we're not hanging the hooks of I know I am loved because someone has eked those three words out of their mouth in that order in a sentence. After all, anyone can say those words. Rather, I think what we would say is this, I know I am loved because someone has demonstrated their love for me. Someone has shown sacrificial love for me. Someone has shown generous love for me. Someone has gone out of their way to do something in acting towards me that robbed them of something for my gain. They didn't just merely let words linger in the air. They demonstrated that love in a very tangible, real, practical way. This is how I know someone loves me. And what the Apostle John is saying in John chapter 3, verse 16, is that you and I can be confident God loves us, not simply because we hear the words, I love you, but because we see the demonstration of God's love and the sacrificial giving of his son. In other words, the proof of God's love is that he acted on it and willingly gave his only son as the sacrifice you and I need for the salvation of our souls. And what makes this love of God so staggering is because of whom this love embraces. God so loved the world. God so loved the world. You see, in the Bible, when you bump up against that phrase, the world, the Bible has a very specific meaning about what it means, the definition it imports into that term. It's a very specific term. 
used to describe the human race and all of its rebellion against God. So now what John is saying in John 3.16 is God so loved the world. He's not saying that God so loved the lovely and because they were really lovely, it's like you might as well love them because they're just so good, they're just so nice, they're just so perfect, they're just so awesome. I really need him and her on my team. After all, they're so good. He's not saying that. When he says God so loved the world, what he's saying is God so loved rebels. God so loved treasonous, sin-dead men and women who would rather have nothing to do with God for the rest of their lives and they would be satisfied with that. When God says he so loved the world, the Bible is describing the human race and all of its rebellion against God and we can only begin to appreciate the beauty of John 3.16 and God so loving the world when we begin to grasp the ugliness of our sin. It's the ugliness of our sin that magnifies the beauty of God's love in John chapter 3, verse 16. You see, God's love embraces not those who are his friends, but those who are his enemies. As rebels against God, we did not deserve his love. We did not earn his love. Yet, says the Apostle Paul, God, listen to the language, demonstrates his own love toward us and that when you were a pretty good guy, he sent Jesus to die for you. No. God demonstrated his love for you when you, young lady, were acting real nice and lovely. And Jesus said, hey, I really need her on my team, so I'm going to save her. It's not what he does. God demonstrates his own love toward us. What did he do? How did he act? How did he demonstrate it? Here's how he demonstrated his love towards us in that while we were yet sinners, Christ came and died for us. You see, we were rebels against God, yet God still gave us the gift of his son. This is what makes John 3.16 so amazing. The best known, most well-loved verse in all the Bible. Because when the reality and the ugliness of your sin-dead heart begins to set in and you begin to realize God loved me, he didn't ask me to go clean myself up and make myself lovely and then come present myself to him and say, see how lovely I am? Haven't I earned your love? No, John 3.16 is saying we were dead in sin. We were ugly in sin. There was nothing lovely about us to where we could come and try to like pull something, earn something, deserve something out of God the Father. No, it is while we were enemies, rebellious, treasonous, sin-dead enemies, God's love came and was demonstrated towards us in sending Christ to die for us. And when that reality of the ugliness of your sin begins to set in, John 3.16 will explode alive. That's what's going on with John 3.16. And now, says John, whoever believes in him, that is, believes in the Son, that is, whoever believes in the Son of God, lifted up on the cross as God's solution to the problem of their sin, not the solution to all those sinners out there, all those bad people out there that really need to have their act you know, fixed. 
It's when you begin to see, no, I'm the ugly sinner. I'm the sin-dead sinner. I'm the rebellious, treasonous enemy against God. Whoever believes in this, in the Son, lifted up on the cross as God's solution to the problem of their sin. John 3.16 says they have eternal life. You see, this is the promise that every true believer here has in Christ. This is why every true believer here this morning was about to come unglued when we were singing the songs that we were singing because God, in his grace, has opened our eyes to see I am the sin-dead sinner that God so loved in sending his son. The promise of no longer receiving eternal perishing as we justly deserve for our rebellion against God, but instead... Here's the promise that we have, receiving eternal life that we do not deserve by believing in the Son of God, believing in the Son of God. So do you remember when I told you, how do you lay claim? What was our opening gambit, our opening question? How does someone lay claim to this gift of eternal life? I said the answer supplied by John 3.16 is this, they believe. They believe, they believe in the Son of God. And because this is true, because whoever believes in the resurrected Son of God may have eternal life, the greatest question you could possibly ask yourself on this Easter Sunday is this question, am I a true believer? A true believer. Am I a true believer? I'm not asking, do you have general belief that Jesus was a guy who lived a long time ago? I'm not asking, do you think Jesus was a man from Nazareth? I'm not asking, do you believe Jesus is a man talked about in the Bible? I'm not asking, do you believe churches talk about Jesus? I'm not asking, do you believe that we should pray to Jesus? I'm asking, have you come to the place where you see that outside of Christ, my sin-dead heart deserves eternal perishing, but God, by his grace, has opened my eyes to see Christ for who he is, the resurrected Son of God who died on Friday but was resurrected on Sunday, proving that he's defeated Satan, he's defeated sin, he's defeated death, and anyone who comes and says, my hope is built on nothing less, my trust is built on nothing less, my belief is built on nothing less than the resurrected Lord of life who can make dead people come to life, spiritually speaking. That is the definition of a true believer. So I ask you, are you a true believer? Are you a true believer? James 2.19 says that even the demons believe and they shudder. There is a form of belief that is not saving belief. I could pull up here and say Jesus is this, he was crucified, demons say believe it. He was resurrected, demons would say, believe it. He's the son of God, believe it. He's the son of man, believe it. Lived 30 years, believed it. Three years devoted to the ministry, believed it. The demons believe all these things. But none of us would say there's going to be demons worshiping the Lord of life for all eternity in heaven. There's a difference between believing in Jesus, believing he's a historical figure, a good guy who did some things, and there's a difference in believing on Jesus, clinging to Jesus in faith, wrapping, as it were, the arms of your heart and mind around him, saying, man, he, it's, it's him. 
He's my only hope of salvation. If I were to stand before God and he were to ask me, why should I let you into my kingdom? Why should I let you into my heaven? My answer of the true believer would be this. My hope is built on nothing less than Jesus' blood, his righteousness, the fact that he was dead on Friday, resurrected on Sunday. He's defeated Satan, defeated sin, defeated death. And that means he has the ability, the power, and the right to save a wretch like me. That is my hope. That is my only answer to you, God. And guess what God does in that moment? He says, come on in. Come on in. The kingdom, here it is, heaven. You're a citizen of my kingdom because those who are citizens of my kingdom, those who are citizens of heaven are those who are true believers. And true believers are those who have believed in him for eternal life. Listen, Jesus came so that you would not perish. He came so that you would not perish. But so that you would have eternal life. This is the reason Jesus came, he says in verses 17 and 18. Verse 17, for God did not send his son into the world to condemn the world. Well, what did he send his son in the world to do? He sent his son into the world, verse 17, in order that the world might be saved through him. Whoever believes in him is not condemned. Listen to how he keeps saying belief, believe, believe, believe. He's describing the result of true belief. Whoever believes in him, not condemned. Whoever does not believe is condemned already because he has not believed in the name of the only son of God. Listen, Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners. 1 Timothy chapter 1, verse 15. Jesus said of himself that he came to seek and to save the lost. Luke chapter 19, verse 10. Jesus did not need to come to earth to condemn mankind, y'all, because we were condemned already. We came out of the womb condemned. We came out of the womb dead. We came out of the womb blind. We came out of the womb needing a savior to make us alive. We were condemned already outside of Christ. We were dead, drowned at the bottom of a sea of sin and in need of someone to reach down and grab us and breathe life into us. Therefore, God sent his son into the world of sin-dead, treasonous rebels in order that the world of sin-dead, treasonous rebels might be saved through him. No one but Jesus can save you from your sin. Now, some of you are here, and you're hearing me talk, and you're thinking to yourself, man, I was today. That's exactly what I hope when the preacher man would say on an Easter Sunday like this, right? There he is talking about salvation and sin and heaven and hell and doing all these sorts of things, right? Great. You're thinking to yourself, man, this all sounds good and fine. What I expected on any given Easter Sunday morning, but here's the nagging question at the back of your mind right now. What proof is there that this word of John 3.16 is true? What proof, right? Because you're the kind of person and rightly so, that is not just going to dive off a cliff just because some guy gets up here, like looks like he's swatting bees around, right? Waving his arms all over the place, getting all animated about John 3.16. Oh, he got really excited. I'm going to believe. No, 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 no. You're, you're better than that. You're smarter than that. You're asking yourself the question, prove it, man. 
Prove it. What proof does John 3.16, what, what can we roll out that John 3.16 is true, y'all? What proof do we have that these words can be trusted? What's the proof that Christ the Son is the answer that I need for eternal life? What's the proof that Jesus is the gift that I must receive in order to not perish eternally? What's the proof that I can be saved through him who was lifted up on the cross to die? What's the proof that whoever believes in the name of the only God can move from condemned only to now no condemnation? Has God given any proof? And the resounding scream of scripture is yes. Yes, he has. He has given proof. And the proof is that death was robbed as Good Friday gave way to Easter Sunday. The proof is that a man once dead walked out of his Jerusalem tomb. The Lord of life proved he can save from sin and death when he declared the grave has no claim on me and up from the grave he arose on that first Easter Sunday. The resurrection of the Lord Jesus Christ is the proof that anybody needs to be able to say whoever believes in him, in him who was resurrected, in him who defeated Satan, in him who defeated death, in him who defeated sin, because he's not still bearing the punishment of sin, he walked out of that grave. That is the proof that John 3.16 is true and can be trusted and that whoever believes in him shall not perish but have eternal life. You see, this is what it means for Jesus to be the way, the truth, and the life. Jesus has life in himself. He has life in himself. John chapter 5, verse 26. Listen, and when the very essence of who you are is life, when the very core nature of your being is life, ain't no grave going to hold your body down. When life is what you are, you cannot die. Which is why he who is life can make the unbreakable promise that whoever believes in me shall not perish but have eternal life. He's only offering you what he is. That's what he's doing. He's offering himself to you. He's saying, listen, I can't die. There's no way that Satan, sin, and death could defeat me. I am life itself. And if I am life and the very core essence of my being, I cannot die. So come to me and I'll just give you I'll give you what I am. I'll give you who I am. That's the invitation of the Lord Jesus Christ. You see, friends, it really does come down to this. If Christ has not been raised, your faith is futile, and we are all still in our sins. But listen, the indisputable, the irrefutable, beyond a shadow of a doubt fact is this. Christ has been raised from the dead. Therefore, the invitation of John 3.16 is, don't just sit on this thing. Come. Don't just sit there and refuse it. Believe in the one who is life himself and proved it through his resurrection from the dead. Receive him and believe in his name for your salvation. Let's pray. Oh, Jesus, Jesus, thank you, thank you, thank you. You are the Lord of life. 
Ain't no grave going to hold your body down. That first Easter Sunday, you robbed a Jerusalem tomb of its victim. And now we are here standing, worshiping, and praising you. Praise your name, King Jesus. Praise your name. You and you alone have made it possible for sin-dead, rebellious, treasonous sinners to have eternal life. God, would you work right now? Holy Spirit, would you come and would you begin to grip the hearts, grip the minds of all those here in earshot? Some of us have believed in Jesus for eternal life with a true saving belief. My hope is that we would just turn this time right into a time of worship. Some of us have not. Some of us are here this morning and the Holy Spirit of the living God is drawing you to himself right now. It's not happenstance that you're here this morning. And the living God is wooing you, drawing you to see that today is the day that you, that you were to truly believe. Cast your belief on him as your only hope of salvation. God, would you do these things for your name and for your glory? Amen.